I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis 43. If you notice, uh, my voice is a little raspy today. Um, I think, you know, the pollen just kind of, it kind of comes from the flowers and plants, and it goes right into my throat, and it sticks to my vocal cords uh, about this time of the year. Uh, it is a beautiful day out there uh, today. Uh, we're looking forward to being able to enjoy the, the nice weather we have. Uh, I will say, um, I've been asked a few questions about uh, an outdoor service, okay, and we do have one planned. We do have one planned on Sunday, uh, May 29th, the Memorial Day weekend. You can look it up, about a month away, uh, so you can be praying about the weather. Um, we're not planning on going out there every week like we did, you know, the last few summers, but... Um, we do want to have one of those again in the near future. And for Memorial Day, we'll have a picnic with it and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it should be a lot of fun. We look forward to that and uh, spending time uh, together as well. Um, as we look at Genesis 43, it's been two weeks since we, um, since we looked at Genesis. Uh, the last time we considered Genesis, we looked at uh, the Joseph story, and we're kind of right in the middle of Joseph's story. And uh, let me just review for a moment, since it's been two weeks. If you remember, uh, Joseph had moved from uh, Potiphar's house to prison to Pharaoh's court. Uh, he uh, was Pharaoh's prime minister, the second highest position in all of Egypt. Now, the means by which he uh, deserved the promotion was he successfully interpreted two dreams that Pharaoh had, and he offered him administrative counsel about how to deal with the pending seven years of famine that were coming. And so uh, as second in charge now, uh, it was just a matter of time until people from all over the world would come to Joseph and, and need his help. And among all those people in the world would be his own family, uh, as they would make trips to him. Uh, and so, the next part of Joseph's story goes from Genesis 42 through the middle of Genesis 47. So, several chapters here. And those chapters are arranged around three trips that Joseph's family make from Canaan, their hometown up near Israel, uh, to Egypt and back. Um, and during these trips... Um, there will be fulfillment to some of the dreams that God had given to Joseph earlier. Uh, you, were, you may have re remember that two weeks ago we considered the first trip that the family made, a round trip from Canaan to Egypt and back, where the brothers experienced peril and distress in many ways, but they experience also the fulfillment of the dream of the sheaves bowing down to Joseph, the first dream that he received. Now, the second dream that he received uh, was about 11 stars, a sun and a moon bowing down to Joseph. That dream has yet to be fulfilled because one brother was missing in the first trip, and so was Jacob, his father, the son in that metaphor, and his wives, the moon. Okay, and so that second dream has yet to be fulfilled, and so this sets us up, I think, for consideration of their second round of trips where God will begin to work to get the 11th brother there, and then eventually uh, Jacob and his wives. 
The second round of trips goes from Genesis 43, verse 1, through the middle of Genesis 45, verse 15. So two and a half chapters to cover one trip in your Bible. Now, we're not going to be able to deal with all of those in one sermon. We're going to take two sermons. We're going to look at Genesis 43 today, the first half of that second trip, and then we'll look at Genesis 45 and 40, or 44 and 45, the first half of that, Lord willing, next week uh, as we uh, have opportunity to do that. And so today we're going to look at the first part of this scene, which occurs in Genesis 43 at a home, at their home in Canaan. And so I divide chapter 43 up into two parts, it's pretty simple, uh, verses 1 through 14 and then 15 through 34, okay? The first 14 verses are about a family meal. Uh, I'm sorry, about a family talk. Oh, I just gave away the second one. I was going to hold off on that. Uh, please stick with me for the length and duration of the sermon, though, please. Okay, l- let me back up. The first half is about a family talk. You can see that the emphasis is on talking uh, all throughout verses 1 through 14. Within these verses, Jacob speaks three times to his sons, including an opening appeal in verses 1 and 2, a brief kind of counter-argument in verse 6, and then a final speech and a prayer in verses 11 and 14, through 14. Here, Jacob has the first and the final word in the family talk. The brothers reply to him twice. Judah, as one of those brothers, takes the lead, and he replies twice, once immediately following all of the brothers in chorus responding to something that Jacob had said in verse 7. And so you can see this emphasis on speaking or replying in the first 14 verses by just looking for the word said or replied. And so let me point this out to you over and over again in the first few verses. Look at verse 2. And when they'd eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, look at verse 3, but Judah said to him, look at verse 6, Israel or Jacob said, look at verse 7, they replied, verse 8, and Judah said, verse 11, then the father Israel, then their father Israel said. So there's much emphasis in this first part on talking. And so if you mark in your Bibles, you might consider putting a bracket around verses 1 through 14 and putting next to it family talk. Okay? And so what we're going to see in these verses uh, is an ancient family talk in an exceptionally dysfunctional home. Perhaps you remember these moments in your own family where your family all had to get together and had to air some stuff out and make a family decision. That's what we're going to see in this passage at the beginning. And so let's take a moment and read through verses 1 through 14, the entire first section about the family talk. Look at verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? 
They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions, could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may you send back your older, your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So I call this section Family Talk at Home. In Canaan. Now, to better understand uh, this text, we'll consider each round of family talks in verses 1 through 14. It starts with round one, where Jacob gives an opening appeal, but then Judah objects. Okay, so at the beginning of the text in verse 1, we learn that the famine was growing severe. Earlier in Genesis chapter 41, near the end of that chapter, in verses 56 and 57, the English Standard Version translates a word as severe in reference to the famine. And so it says that the famine was severe in Egypt and in all the earth. On that occasion, the Hebrew word is the normal word for strong. Okay, so in Genesis 41, when describing the famine, it says it, it was strong. Moses says it was strong or overpowering. But in this chapter, in verse 1... When he uses the word severe, it's a different word. It's a more intense word. It's a, it's a more difficult or more challenging word. Moses uses a word that often is translated as heavy or oppressive. And so what he's saying is the severity of this famine is growing worse and worse. Well, that combined with the fact that the family had run out of grain leads Jacob to issue a casual request to the boys. The end of verse 2. Go again, buy a little food. Buy us a little food. But a few explanations are necessary here for us to understand. This is not just a simple casual request. Okay? Uh, first, uh, we know that the brothers had brought back quite a load of food on their first trip, a load of grain, at least 10 donkey loads full. I have no idea of knowing how much that is. It's just a lot of grain. Okay? Um, when I compare this chapter with the chapter that follows, and I'm not going to get into it, it seems like it's been maybe around a year or so since that first trip. And so they've burned through all of their resources. Remember, Simeon's down in jail. But they burned through all their resources. Now they're at the end again. It's not just a casual request. And we also know that because the trip to Egypt is not an easy one. It's a difficult one that takes at least two or three weeks in one direction. It's not like he's just saying, just go down the road a little bit to the market and get us some food. No, this is no simple request. But there is one other 
outstanding factor that complicates the request. And that's what Judah's replies about in verses 3 through 5. Judah objects, and his objections all re revolve around someone down in Egypt who complicates things, and his name is called the man. You see that in the text? You see that over and over again? The man. The man. Jacob must remember that the man in Egypt holds all the cards. They will have to play by his rules, and Jacob cannot ignore the facts. He must make a choice, and Jacob's choice is this. Do nothing and starve, or risk Benjamin and maybe live. And so what God is doing behind the scenes here is he's using the pressures of necessity to force Jacob to make a difficult decision that involves going against the man, the prime minister of Egypt. Well, this opening dialogue leads to another round of discussion. Jacob starts in verse 6 with what I just call a counter jab. Okay, it's just like a brief, quick strike that he, he lands. And then the brothers will reply. Look at verse 6. Israel, that's the other name for Jacob. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Here in shifting blame in this situation, Jacob asks why they even told the man about Benjamin. I mean, why did you allow yourself to get cornered and give up that information? I mean, Jacob knows all about how to conceal truth. I mean, this is a guy who put skins on his neck and on his arms to conceal truth. This is a guy who put on his brother's clothes and prepared an imposter meal, his mother did, for him so that he could rip his brother out of the birthright or blessing, I should say, the blessing. So he wonders why his brothers, why his sons have been so forthright with the man to tell him everything. And then he says, and why in doing this have you treated me so badly? Treated him so badly. Of course, we almost forgot, this is Jacob. Everything's about him. Right? It's all about him. He bears all of this stuff. Jacob is affected. He's just like a small child. He thinks all of life is about him. Why did they do this and treat him so badly? You remember the words you used to say when you were a child about this? Uh, nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. They think I eat worms. Okay, remember that? Uh, just brought back some childhood memories for some of you. If you're from Western PA, we use that. I don't know if you use that down here. Well, that's like Jacob here. He's having a pity party for himself. He's trying to make his sons feel bad about it bad about everything. Now, one thing I want to point out about Jacob here is we need to fundamentally recognize something about him. Foundationally, Jacob in this passage is a father. He's a parent. And as parents, if God trusts us in this position, we must strive never to guilt or manipulate our children into obedience. Unfortunately, some parents regularly make their children feel bad for how their behavior affects the parent. 
You don't know how busy of a week I've had, and then you leave all this stuff all over the place. I've been working all day. I got up well before you, and you, you said, you're, you're making things hard for me. Or how can I do this for you? This is like the busiest day of my life. I'm trying to get ready for something, and you want me to go for a few hours and do this with you? But don't we understand, parents, that such behavior actually pushes our children's hearts away from us? May God empower us to be better parents than Jacob in the text. Well, his counterjab draws quite the response in verses 7 through 10. The boys are tired of their father shifting the blame, guilting them, manipulating them, so they reply in chorus in verse 7. I love how Moses writes this. We don't even know who the real speakers are. This is the brothers. And then Judah takes over in verses 8 through 10. Now, regarding what the brothers say in verse 7, the main contribution they make is that the man asked them a bunch of questions. How could they possibly know that he would key in on one of these questions and make this demand that their little brother would come down to Egypt? It's like they're saying, it's not our fault. I mean, we went down there on this long trip to get some food, and we met this unreasonable man who thinks we're spies and makes demands of us. How can you think it's, that? it's our fault? You know, I can imagine them. You know, it's like, if you, if you want to do any better, just go yourself, old man. You know, and of course, they wouldn't uh, perhaps be able to get away with that in that culture. That's when Judah takes the conversation in a more productive direction because of the urgency of the decision that's before them. And he says that he will personally act as a pledge of safety for Benjamin and that if he does not bring him back, he will bear the guilt forever. If he does not bring back Benjamin, I think what this means is he'd be willing to be cut off from the family and any rights of inheritance that he might be due. He then suggests within Judah's words here that the time for procrastination has already put them and their little ones in danger. And that it's time for Jacob to make a decision. That brings us to uh, near to the end of the family talk. There's only one other person who speaks from this point on, and that's Jacob. And he gives his kind of final speech and prayer. And uh, at this point, in verses 11 through 14, which we've already read, Jacob submits to the son's request. He gives them advice about the trip, and then he prays, or issues a prayer wish for them before they journey. I just want to point out a few things about verses 11 through 14 that I think help us understand the text. His advice is about taking money and taking a gift to the man down in Egypt. Um, they should take twice the value of the grain so that they can return the money that somehow found it into their bags last time. And he says, hopefully it's just an oversight or mistake this one made. So take enough money to buy new grain and take the money that you formerly, or you know, the, the, the silver that you took last time, to, to repay that first occasion. Then they should also take a gift. Now, regarding the gift, uh, I'll say a few things here. Uh, first, Jacob knows the value of a gift or a present meant to appease someone who's angry with you. 
Matter of fact, this word for gift or present, depending on what translation you're in, is the same exact word that was used in passage before when he got together a lot of things to give and to flatter Esau before he ever saw him to his face. Okay, so he's going to speak from experience here. Let, let me tell you how you can arrange a gift that can you know, kind of smooth things over a bit for you. Well, this gift that they're supposed to take should contain six things, right? Balm, honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. I'm thankful to the ESV translation here. I never knew the word pistachio nuts were, was in the Bible, but now I do. <laughs> pistachio nuts and almonds. Now, some of these gifts aren't found anywhere else in Scripture. But the interesting thing to me is just a few chapters before that, three of these are found together the last time we saw a caravan making their way from Israel down to Egypt. In Genesis 37, 25, and you can check it out sometime, we saw that the caravan who purchased Joseph when he was in the pit had balm, gum, and myrrh with them. These gifts were readily available in Egypt and were, were not readily available in Egypt. They're readily available in Canaan. And they were treasured by the Egyptians. Perhaps Jacob thinks that this will endear the man to the brothers. Give him some pistachio nuts and almonds. It might instead remind this man of the very way that, that these brothers first abused him. As that caravan had some of these same things with them. Jacob, of course, would have no way to know that, but... That's his advice. To the advice, he issues a prayer wish in verse 14, and I think it's an important prayer wish for uh, all of Genesis 43, if you're going to make sense out of this passage. His prayer wish in verse 14 starts this way. He says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. That is, Jacob here invokes the name of God that God had used to reveal himself in certain cases. The name is El Shaddai, You've heard preaching or teaching on this before, God Almighty. And he does so in hopes that God would protect the boys. Now this name for God has already been used three times in Genesis. I looked this up just uh, last night and uh, saw this again. Uh, it was first used when God revealed himself as God Almighty to Abram. When he made a covenant with Abram, where he promised to bring blessing and multiplication to him and his seed and promise to protect them. So the second use of God Almighty is used when Isaac uh, sends Jacob away to find a wife so that he would be able to have children and grandchildren. Again, it's used in a covenant setting where God Almighty is to give multiplication and blessing to the family. And then finally before this, uh, when God changed Jacob's name to Israel, he revealed himself to Jacob by this name, God Almighty, as well as saying right after that, be fruitful and multiply. And so this name was often used in covenant settings when God promises blessing and multiplication and protection over his people. And so it's just very natural then for Jacob to refer to God as the God Almighty. 
I think Jacob knows here that it's this covenant God who is the only true answer to the man down in Egypt. Perhaps you're facing a powerful man or woman in your life who is unfair and brings great fear to you. Won't you consider Jacob's faith here, his prayer? God Almighty was on his side, and so he knew the only one that could do it was God Almighty. I love the words of Paul the Apostle later in Romans 8 when he considers all of the things that line up against the followers of Jesus Christ. And he asks this question, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The only true solution to some of our problems with men or women in this world is God Almighty. Now, specifically, he calls on God Almighty. I want you to look back at verse 14 again. This is important for the whole text. He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. So specifically, he calls on God to demonstrate mercy. In this prayer, Jacob asked God to demonstrate compassion or tenderness toward the sad plight of these boys before they go before the strong man down in Egypt. And this appeal for compassion is important for the second half of the story. And I'm going to show you why in just a moment. Okay, but just take note of it. It's a prayer to God Almighty to show compassion or mercy on the boys. With that prayer wish, however, we come to the end of the family talk at home. And that leads to the second half of the chapter where we see a family meal in Joseph's house in Egypt. Okay, so... Again, if you're putting brackets over Genesis 43, I can't, I won't, I, I don't know the next time I'll preach on this for you, uh, or I'll walk through it, so I have to write reminders down to me in my Bible. Uh, so it goes from family talk to family meal. Now that sounds a little bit better to me than family talk, right? Okay, I have good memories of family meals. Uh, perhaps you do as well growing up. Well, they're going to experience a family meal, but they're going to do so down in Egypt. And it's interesting from verses 15 through the end of the passage that everything takes place in Joseph's house. Joseph's house is mentioned over and over again in the passage. If you're just reading down through this and you highlight it, you'll find it nine times explicitly mentioned. House, 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 Joseph's house, 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 Joseph's house. Everything is taking place there. One time it's implicitly even there. As the scene unfolds, there's a focus on the actions of the brothers, verses 15 through 25, then Joseph, verses 26 through 30, and then all of them together enjoying a meal in Joseph's house in verses 31 through 34. So again, the bracket in my Bible says family meal over verses 15 through 34. Uh, so first we see the brothers as they're welcomed into Joseph's house. Look at verse 15. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before the brothers. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him, and 
brought the men into Joseph's house. Okay, so the way they're received is far different than the first trip. Remember the first trip? What happened to them there? I mean, pretty early on, he accuses them of being spies, right? And then they're sent to prison for three days. They escape by the you know, skin of their teeth. Now, he's inviting them into his house, okay, which is the, one of the greatest honors in Egyptian culture. I mean, this is the prime minister. He doesn't do this with every group of people coming through. So they bring their brother Benjamin with them, and now they're being escorted into his house, and instead of them, that making them feel good about things, they're frightened. They can't understand this. It seems to be too good. So they're afraid of punishment. That's, that's what we start reading about in verse 18. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, uh, so, that we may, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. He's after our donkeys. <laughs> verse 19. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We don't know who put the money in our sack. He replied, that's the steward, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Okay, so the brothers just can't understand. How do you go from supposed spies to house guests? They think that Joseph intends to hurt or imprison them and steal their donkeys because of the money that they found in their sacks. But then the steward explains that somehow he had received their money. And he suggests that it must have been God who did this and who brings peace or shalom to them. Now, this may have been the same steward who was instructed by Joseph before to put the money back in the sacks. We don't know for sure. Regardless, he, and he tells them this, and then he releases Simeon to them. And I'm amazed here by the scripture because this reunion draws absolutely no attention from Moses. Like, I'm thinking, like, as a contemporary reader, like, you know, what happened to Simeon? Simeon's out, you know, is he, is he excited? Is he mad? Like, it took a year. What's wrong with you guys? You know, you, you could add some stuff to this story, but Moses isn't interested in it. Not interested. He's going to keep our focus on what's going on here. All this leads the men to uh, be more at ease so that they can prepare to meet Joseph. Look at verse 24. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present. They prepared the gift for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. So after kind of refreshing themselves, they ready themselves for a meeting at noon. They get the gift out, these six things, arrange them all out, get them ready, make them look as good as they can. 
And that's when Joseph, Joseph arrives on the scene. Look at verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with him and bowed down, bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Here I want to just briefly overview this with you, then I want to point out one important thing to you uh, from verses 26 through 30. So as the brothers begin to talk to Joseph, he asks questions about themselves and about their father. Regarding their father, he asks, is he still alive and is he experiencing shalom? The word, is he well, is the same Hebrew word for shalom or peace. Is he experiencing well-being? And they say he indeed is experiencing shalom. Okay, so if you're reading through this in the original, you just see peace, peace, peace throughout this middle part of the story. Everything's turning out well. Everyone's experiencing shalom. Things are going well here. But then Joseph lifts up his eyes, and he, while they're bowing down, he sees the 11th brother. And he inquires about his identity. Is this your youngest brother? And then he blesses him. But he's overwhelmed in the moment, and he looks for a private place in his bedchamber to weep. Okay, that's the overview. Now, what I want to draw your attention to is what Joseph feels in verse 30. Okay, so the text in the middle of verse 30 says that his compassion grew warm for his brother. Do you see that in verse 30? His compassion grew warm for his brother. Now this expression is built off of a verb that means to be agitated, to grow warm or to grow hot. As he was talking with his brother, he begins to feel very strong emotions in his heart. No doubt his brother looks far different than he did as a small toddler. He's grown. Then the text tells us what specific uh, feelings or feeling he felt. He's He's being agitated. He's growing warmer, hot, with, the text says, compassion for his brother. Now, wouldn't you know, this is the same word that was used earlier in Jacob's prayer for them. Remember, Jacob prayed, may God Almighty show mercy on you. And now, Joseph, through Joseph, they begin to experience that mercy or compassion, that tenderness. This word for compassion, by the way, is used in 1 Kings chapter 3. Of a, it's translated a heart's yearning for someone you love. That's what he's feeling, and this, I believe, is a result of their, Jacob's prayer that God would do this. Through Joseph, the prayer is beginning to be answered. 
It's completely undeserved, but God is answering their prayers through Joseph growing warm or showing tenderness toward them, which, by the way, you just have to stop and just point out the fact, right, that one of the primary ways we experience the tender compassion of God is through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, a greater Joseph. A greater Joseph. who He is the instrument by which we experience the mercy of God today. Well, Joseph's interaction with his brothers leads them all to enjoy a meal at the end of the text. Look at verse 31. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Okay, so some interesting things here, right? After a few minutes, the scene shifts to Joseph's dining room. After Joseph composes himself, he washes his face, joins them. Have you ever washed your face after crying before? I don't know where that practice started. Hey, maybe here. He's in his bedchamber. He washes his face, goes and says, serve the food. And the meal that they experience is a bit unusual because Egyptians would not sit down to eat with the Hebrew people. There could be all kinds of different reasons for this. One of which would be the Hebrew people, they sacrificed cows. Cows were uh, very important uh, to the Egyptians. They would never eat a cow. Um, uh, we don't know exactly why, but the result is Joseph eats by himself, the Egyptian servants eat by themselves, and the Hebrew brothers eat at their own table, but likely in the presence of Joseph. Now, the, the, the brothers of Joseph are arranged according to birth order, and this is amazing to them. As you're reading through the text, it may be that they're just amazed at, like, the extravagance of the meal and, the, you know, this wonderful, it's it's like far more than a meal. It's like a banquet that they're experiencing. That could be it. But I, I think it's more likely that they're amazed that they're all placed or arranged in the order of their age, from oldest to youngest. I mean, how could this man know their birth order? But they don't think too much about that because of the fine meal before them. So they eat and they're merry with their brother. Okay, now... What is actually happening here at the end of the passage is that there is a test which Joseph is arranging in this passage regarding how they will treat his brother. Okay, and this is important for this chapter and then what we talk about next week. And so let me, let me just close with this. I think that Joseph puts before them two tests to kind of recreate his own plight before them. He's going to put Benjamin in his spot and he's going to test these ten brothers to see if they've learned anything. They've grown. Okay. The first test is right in this text. I call it the test of favoritism. Okay. And um, 
you know, if you don't agree with any of these things, let me know later. I, you know, I haven't really seen some of the stuff in other places, so I'm a little nervous about it, but this is why things going on, so I'm just going to tell you. First test, test of favoritism. Joseph mirrors the advantage, the favoritism that he had for Benjamin. Remember, when Joseph was younger, he was given a special coat, and, the, and his brothers were not. They got nothing. That favoritism made them so mad. Remember, their ire was so high that they could not even speak shalom to them. They couldn't say peace to them, to him. They all knew that Joseph was Jacob's favorite. Now, since Joseph, uh, in Jacob's eyes, is dead, he's got a new favorite. And it's his little brother Benjamin, who comes, came from his favorite wife. And so Joseph gives Benjamin an advantage as well. He adds on top of Jacob's favoritism, and he gives Benjamin five times as much food as the rest of his brothers. Okay, so Joseph received a special coat years before. Now Benjamin receives a special portion. I think Joseph does this to see if the brothers will grow visibly jealous at the party, if they'll attack him. We see some of the same body language that he saw before. That's the first test. And, and then later in the next chapter, he gives a second test that we'll talk about next week. This test I call the test of vulnerability. So you've got a favorite boy who becomes vulnerable. To see what will happen, Joseph creates a vulnerable situation for Benjamin to see if the brothers will abandon him too. More specifically, in the next chapter, he'll create a situation that puts Benjamin in so much trouble that he won't be able to head back to Canaan to see what the brothers will do. He wants to see how they're going to respond. That second test is coming in chapter 44. And the question there will be, will they neglect Benjamin as they did Joseph before? Or will they come to his aid? We'll answer that test that second test next week, but for now, test one, test of favoritism, everything is good. They all experience shalom together because God's mercy is extended to their family through the growing compassion of Joseph. And it's with, I believe, the double mention of compassion or mercy that we come to the reason why Moses put this passage in our Bibles. Men and women, as I'm thinking about this passage, and it's been great to see, right? Family talk, family meal. Wonderful, easy way to remember it. But then we think, okay, now why is this chapter helpful? How is it helpful to us? I think that emphasis on compassion in both parts, the emphasis on these brothers' need, mercy, is the key reason why Moses includes it here. This text teaches that God moves whomever he wants to demonstrate mercy or compassion to his people when they experience hardship. When I walk away from Genesis 43, I can't help but think that we pray to a God who's not puny. Our God is not puny, doesn't have little hands. He can't do anything with the man. That's not our God. He can deliver from the prime minister of Egypt. He can show compassion uh, in any way. He can, he can lead or move anyone to start feeling compassion for one of his people. Now, as we close this section, I, I want to ask you two quick questions of application. 
and then we'll pray. First, do you feel vulnerable and in need of God's mercy today? Do you feel vulnerable in your situation and in need of God's mercy? Perhaps he'll use someone else to encourage you this week. My challenge to you when put in a situation to that, like that is to, to, to pray to God Almighty and ask him for compassion or mercy in your trial, the trial that you face. He's the only true solution that can help us in our own significant trials and difficulties. He's already shown us mercy through Jesus, and he, he can do so time and time again as we go through trials. The second question I have is this. Are you willing to help another in need this week? Perhaps this week, or last week, or the coming week, you'll notice your brother or sister in need. Vulnerable, weak. Maybe God will stir your heart with growing compassion so that you can help this week. There are plenty of people in our assembly who are struggling financially, physically, spiritually. Would you pray this week that God would stir your heart for one of your brothers or sisters so that you could be like a Joseph, showing tenderness and compassion? Or perhaps even better, so that you could be like Jesus who showed tender compassion to you while you were still a sinner. He ministered to your spiritual needs. He cared for you and your own financial and physical difficulties. And he can use you to do the same for others. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of walking through this text of Scripture. It's fun to consider a fam an ancient family talk and a family meal, but Lord, may we not lose sight of your tenderness that you demonstrated to these undeserving boys. Jacob knew the only solution was God Almighty. And so, Father, as we consider our own trials and difficulties today, may we also know that the only true solution is God Almighty. We're thankful with Paul that we can ask, if God is for us, who can be against us? And applied this in this question is that God is for his people. God is for those whom he has forgiven through Jesus Christ and has transferred his righteousness to their, their, their account. So God, you are for us, and we know you can help us. May we not leave Genesis 43 tonight with hope in any other thing, any other person, any other rescue other than you. We know you're greater than the man in our life, or the woman, or the challenge. You're greater. You're the solution. Lord, strengthen our faith in this. Help us to recognize that you are our only solution. And then, Lord, as you do this and you strengthen our faith, I pray that you would encourage us this week to be like Joseph, to be like Jesus, to show tender compassion and mercy to our brothers and sisters here. 
May we look for ways that we can serve someone who is just physically challenged this week. May we look for ways to help someone who's financially at the end of their rope. May we look for ways to encourage someone who's a new believer struggling under the obligations of their Christian life to come alongside of them, to encourage them through prayer, but then to also put flesh to it and demonstrate tender compassion. And we would pray that you would do this for the glory of your own name, not our own. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.